Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And this week, we're in China for the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in an enormous conference complex at Yankee Lake, which is about an hour northeast of Beijing. It is truly vast. It took me 10 minutes to walk to breakfast this morning. When I got there, I found myself battling for space at the breakfast buffet with the chief executive of Goldman Sachs and the former head of Google, Eric Schmidt. That was just breakfast. The place is teeming with business leaders and global thinkers, along with quite a large number of Chinese officials. To stimulate debate, we at Bloomberg Economics produced a book of original research on the global economy, including the Bloomberg Drivers and Disruptors Index, working out which countries are going to succeed in the new era for the global economy. In a minute, you'll hear a lively session I hosted here talking about that index and the research that went into it. But first, a chat with one of the many, many interesting people here, Lord Nicholas Stern, an economist now and for many years at the London School of Economics, who was the head of the Government Economic Service in the UK back in 2006, when he chaired what continues to be a landmark review of the economics of climate change, the Stern Review. Lord Nicholas Stern, it's great to see you. I'm struck At this conference and at lots of other things I go to now, it's a very different debate about climate change than even a few years ago, uh, let alone when you uh, were chairing the Stern Review, which came out in 2006. So, and, And you're sitting here, you've obviously remained involved in this debate. But if you just sort of, the perspective between now and then, would you say things have genuinely got better in terms of people's under, realistic understanding of what needs to be done to combat climate change, or is it just louder? Something has got better, some things have got worse. Um, the science has got worse in the sense that it's still more worrying uh, now, partly because things are coming through faster than we thought, more severely than we thought, but also that emissions have gone on rising, temperatures gone on rising. So that's more worrying. The understanding of these issues, I think, is genuinely greater than it was before. Thirteen years ago, when the Stern Review came out, I doubt if climate change was taught very much at schools. And now, right across Europe, and I guess in many parts, the United States and India and China, it is taught at schools. Greta Thunberg, now 16, says she started learning about climate change at eight. Where from? In school. So I'm a university professor. The students coming through uh, have all seen the subject of climate change discussed for several years of their education, their formative years. And they're putting pressure on the rest of us now. And there's some people who are a bit sceptical Uh, 13 years ago, who thought it was at best marginal. Larry Summers, Bill Gates. We've just been listening to Bill Gates. We've just been listening. Who's now very focused on it. I remember I spoke to Bill (laughs) Gates uh, in 2006, 2007, just after it had come out. And he thought it was in some sense a diversion from the really big problem of poverty reduction. And it is absolutely a big problem, poverty reduction, but we're seeing that climate change is a great destroyer of livelihoods and that there are different ways of doing things which are becoming increasingly attractive. Restoring degraded land 
captures carbon in the soil, increases productivity, makes you more resilient against difficult weather. So I think that relationship between poverty reduction and climate change is seen rather positively now, where perhaps a dozen years or so ago, good people who were interested in reducing poverty thought, oh goodness, this is an environmental diversion from our real task. That, I think, has uh, gone down enormously. And you pushed back, actually, in the session we were just in that was quite a long session on climate change, and then there was a conversation with Bill Gates. But in that earlier session, you pushed back on the implicit assumption of many of the speakers that there there continued to be this trade-off between economic growth and combating climate change. How is it that people are misunderstanding that? Because at some level, there there can be a trade-off. If you think of the carbon content of human activity as being in a fixed relation to the output, so if output goes up by 10%, carbon emissions go up by 10%, then actually there is a trade-off. But of course, the whole point of this is to radically drive down the carbon content of what we do. Now, as you do that, it comes with innovation. Uh, discovery, investment and growth. It drives down air pollution and water pollution and that gives you cities where you can move and breathe and be much more productive and much more cheerful actually too. It um, protects the natural capital. Natural capital, you know, our, our forests and our oceans and our water, which are key parts of our productivity as human beings, our health as human beings, our happiness as human beings. So if you see that process of driving down carbon uh, in relation to output as being creative and innovative in this way, as bringing all kinds of benefits around health and so on, which are good for productivity, then you see that actually investing strongly in driving emissions down to zero Uh, is the growth story of the 21st century. Well, it's interesting when you talk about growth because we have lots of conversations on this podcast about the state of the global economy and particularly worries about a slowdown in the global recovery leading to another recession, which policymakers won't have enough tools to confront because we know we've sort of got closer to maxing out monetary policy. And a constant theme, which has also come up at this event, is that governments are going to have to lean more on fiscal policy. It strikes me that a lot of ministers, policymakers across Europe, who hear the demonstrators out in the street talking about the environment um, and can see the need for fiscal stimulus, will now be looking for ways of having fiscal stimulus that's also going to get you closer to that decarbonisation. Is that, is, that is that too good to be true, or do you think there are some genuine win-wins there? It's an argument which we have to make, and yes, I do think there's some genuine win-wins there. The uh, world is demand-deficient. Interest rates are on the floor. We have wonderful investment uh, possibilities. We have loads of saving. So what we have to do is to have economic policies which draw through the investments. That means good policies in relation to carbon, investing in R&D, stable institutions and so on. That will draw through the investment. And we have to organize our finances so we have the right kind of finance in the right place, on the right scale, at the right time. And we can do that. And we can see how to make both things happen. And that will give you an increase in investment, very good kind of investment, 
and the savings will come in to finance that investment. And it's a wonderful story of investment for growth, uh, investment for increasing demand, a Schumpeterian story, the great economic historian of innovation and discovery. It is a story which increases demand, accelerates the, the rate of technical progress, and is sustainable because it's a structure that doesn't turn in on itself and destroy its environment like a high-carbon growth story would. So this is actually in our hands, and it would be uh, overwhelmingly negligent if we didn't take that opportunity now. And I think that's increasingly seen. And, okay, so what if I put another layer on this? You're a policymaker who thinks, yes, I want to have uh, more spending. I want to do it in a way that helps decarbonize. Oh, and by the way, there's also a lot of concern around rising inequality. So I have to make sure that those investments have a progressive effect as well, that they, have, they don't damage the poor the way lots, relatively speaking, the way lots of innovation and lots of other forms of economic growth have in the last few years. Can you give them that as well? Can you give them a progressive, a pro-poor way of supporting the environment? We absolutely can, but it means we have to run our policies much better than they've been done in the past. But we can see how to do that. Part of the story, suppose you have a uh, carbon price. In other words, you stop uh, letting people to do very damaging things for nothing. So you abolish the subsidy associated with that. That's another way of looking at it. But you have the carbon price and you have revenues. So what do you do with those revenues? Well, one thing that you should do is make sure that the poorer people in the population are protected. And you can actually uh, make them better off. So if you... Uh, return some of that money to the population but make sure more goes to the poorer population and they're actually better off as a result of that. But you have to do it and you have to do it consciously. Secondly, we're talking about um, a restructuring of our industries. We're driving down to zero carbon everywhere in the next 30 or 40 years. And that means that you do things very differently. Some things you stop doing, you stop coal mining. And these are the people who are specialised in making pistons for cars. The car makers might employ the same people, but the people who supply them with pistons would be having to switch to other things. These are dislocations. This is radical change. And we've been really bad in the past. If you think of the northern towns in the UK, it applies to other countries too, but if you think of the northern towns in the UK, movement from manufacturing to services, that's what happens as people's incomes go up and they go out to eat and they go on holidays. If you look at labour-saving technical progress, that's been fast and it's going to be fast in the future with AI and robotics and uh, so on. If you think of globalisation and the changing international division of labour, three trends which they'll have their ups and downs, but they'll continue. And then you whack them with a global financial crisis on top of all that and you get dislocation which is very geographically focused. And we have to take that on directly. And it's not just from climate policies. It's actually probably bigger from other kinds of things that are happening as well. I am fascinated by what you think when you look at the US presidential campaign. As a, as a serious economist who has also done all this serious thinking around climate change, on the one hand, you have almost a familiar sight, although surprising in some ways, but you have an administration that's kind of in denial about climate change. But on the other side, you now have a Democratic Party and Democratic candidates who are uh, gathering behind really very dramatic efforts to combat climate change that could involve 
destroying or eliminating a large chunk of the U.S. energy business almost overnight in the case of uh, Elizabeth Warren. When you see that, on the one hand, you've got more serious proposals by leading presidential candidates than ever before, certainly more radical ones, but um, possibly a worry that they are not realistic in what you can actually achieve in a five-year or a ten-year time frame. What do you think? I think you can put in place strong policies. And if you have strong policies that people believe will continue, then investment comes behind those policies. So I think good policies, uh, which people find credible over the medium term, would, in lead, would lead to important investment booms. And that would lead to rising uh, demand and stronger growth. And it would be highly productive growth because a lot of that's efficiency. But it would also, and this is what we're discussing just now, it would also carry with it dislocation. So your policies have to be uh, not simply bringing through this very attractive, highly productive, cleaner investment, but at the same time, they would have to be explicitly oriented around managing dislocation. And if you have one without the other, well, then you risk having neither. Well, that's so, and that presumably is your concern when you look at some of these more extreme proposals, if they're not well thought through, the Green New Deal, which has a very short time frame on it. Is there a risk of a backlash if you try and do it too fast? Suppose you tried to go zero carbon by 2030, 10 years from now. Would all the internal combustion cars be off the road 10 years from now? Would all the gas-fired boilers be out? I think about 8 million of them in the UK. I don't know how many there are in the US. Would all those be out in 10 years? I, I think it's hard. Bill Stern, thank you very much. Very good. Well, uh, I'm delighted to have found uh, another eminent person in the corridors here at the New Economy Forum, Zhu Min, uh, former Deputy Managing Director of the IMF and former Deputy Governor of the Chinese Central Bank, now running uh, Tsinghua University's National Institute of Financial Research. Mm -hmm. I should say we're hoping that this is going to be quiet, but we've just found a a corner of this conference room, um, so it might not be quite the same uh, broadcast quality that we're used to. Dr Zhu, you have been, and I have known you over the years observing the international system both from the IMF and before that at the People's Bank of China. Uh, I spoke to the chief economist of the World Bank a few a couple of months ago uh, Penny Goldberg who was a great trade economist. She said she's changed her view recently she thought that this move away from globalization was temporary now she's not so sure maybe we will we have seen the peak period for global integration. What do you think? I think globalization will continue. This is uh, driven by the human nature, driven by the product productivity and the growth and efficiency. Um, the, yes, currently we, we saw so many things in the sort of on the globalization, so particularly from some major economies. And, uh, but I don't think that they will stop the trend. If you're looking for the, 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 the statistics you will see in the past 18 months after U.S.-China trade fractures, the U.S. import from China dropped 10%, and China import from U.S. dropped 10% as, as the, the, the results. But both countries doing quite, quite okay. China still have a 3% of trade growth, so U.S. is still remaining more or less the same. U.S. trade deficit even wider from 2.9% of GDP to 3.2% GDP today. 
And uh, so it's just to say, I mean, the whole world is still run the course. Trade slowing down, it have its own cost now because the technology movements, because the service trading become more important than uh, the goods trading, right? And um, obviously the current populism has an active impact on the globalization. But fundamentally, I don't think that will change because, you know, three quarter of people living in the emerging market, low income countries, looking for the better good life and the people in the rich country looking for a good quality, low price uh, products as well. And the product, uh, supply chain become longer with the technology. And I will see, you will see more labor divisions and in all these sections. Um, so in that sense, I think that that's the, the big trend, big way for the whole world. And we just in this very short time periods for the bumping uh, periods. I guess one of the ways, and I, I heard you say that on one of the, well, the panels uh, yesterday, it's very interesting to point out that trade has continued to grow. And actually, we know that the, the, the other economic policies in the US at the moment, the, the, inc- the stimulus that came from the tax cuts and other things, were naturally going to increase the amount of US the imports, spending, yeah. you know, even as the administration exactly. was trying to cut it. Yeah, that's S&I, right? <laughs> yeah, saving yeah, saving investment. Yeah, saving yeah, 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 that's yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Basic economics. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that I think could change the game and I think it's interesting especially from your perspective um, understanding the banking side as you do um, people do worry about the trade war spilling into the international financial markets and we've seen in fact we had um, one of the sort of Bloomberg scoops of the last few months has been uh, the news that in the administration people were talking about wanting to put limits on US investors investing in China as part of the trade war is that something that you do? Is that something people are worried about here, officials here in China? And do, do you think it could spill into that? Right. We 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 we, we observe the U.S. government proposed some sort of restriction on U.S. financial institutions investing in Chinese company in the Chinese market. Right. We call that. But in the real world, in the past 12 months, U.S. capital actually moved in more than ever before in Chinese financial market, and particularly in the tech sector. It's very interesting that Chinese money moved to the U.S. tech sector slowed down dramatically because specific. But U.S. money moving to the China tech sector increased quite a bit. And the U.S., uh, uh, not only U.S., the global uh, capital flow moving to the Chinese financial market in terms of equity market and financial market doubled market shares in the past 12 months. Do you finally, I know that you, know, you were sitting in the IMF uh, for much of the response to the global financial crisis and seeing how people were able to coordinate, policymakers were able to come together, for example, at the G20 meeting in 2009 in London know, yeah, in yeah. favour of fiscal stimulus right. at that time. Do you think... Uh, there's been, there has really been a change in the capacity for international cooperation? Or, you know, when you walk around events like this, do you think actually all the same people are still talking together, uh, even with some of the noises coming from the no, U.S. administration? Compared with 2008, there's a big structure change. I mean, the first issue is, in 2008, what are the high-risk sector? It's a banking sector. It's a household debt sector, right? Because the mortgage, you know, subground things, and the banking sector is bad. After 10 years, the banking sector is much stronger than the safer, and household is okay. But risk shift to where? To non-banking financial institutes, 
the asset management companies. Asset management company in the United States today is almost the, the same size of a banking sector now. It's absolutely amazing. There was only only 35% of banking sector in 2008. So you see how fast. And that the people, the companies investing yeah. in, in shares for people's shares pensions for pension, and yeah. uh, 401k. So the exposure is huge, right? So non-benefiting assets, the risk is much higher, right? higher than 2008 for sure. Copper sector, the risk exposure is higher than 2008 because they have a higher debts now. Solvent debts risk is much higher. The government debt. The yeah. government debts, right? I mean, in 2008, the government debt is rather low, right? I mean, but today, they, everyone at roughly 40% debt level of right, GDP. So, so you're right. And uh, we do have a very different risk structure uh, compared to 2008, but policy space is very limited. And uh, most importantly, in 2008, the global political cooperation is almost gone. So, if cross it calm, I think it would be very, very difficult to deal with. Let's hope it doesn't. Xu Min, thank you very much. Thank you. Good to talk to you. I mentioned earlier that Bloomberg's economists did some original research for the New Economy Forum, including a new Global Drivers and Disruptors Index, which we put in a report for the delegates and published online this week. Well, we just had a panel session about that research featuring our own economists and outside experts. I've just got time to give you a taste of it here. You're going to hear first from Bloomberg's chief economist, Tom Orlig, often on the podcast. He's going to be explaining the thinking behind the Drivers and Disruptors Index. And we then have a response from the author and former chief economist of HSBC, Stephen King. The main takeaway from our research uh, is that the path to development is getting narrower and harder to follow. In general, low- and middle-income countries are less well-positioned to deal with the disruptive forces which are reshaping the global economy. Let's just think about why that is for a second. Um, In general, low- and middle-income countries try and develop by exporting. In a world moving towards protectionism, that's getting harder to do. In general, low- and middle-income countries either have a big factory sector or they want to have a big factory sector. In a world where the range of tasks that can be performed cheaply and efficiently by machines is ever-expanding, having a big, cheap workforce isn't the advantage that it used to be. In general, low- and middle-income countries don't have very good communication infrastructure, and don't have a very strong services sector. So low- and middle-income countries are not well-positioned to seize the opportunity of the digital economy. Many low- and middle-income countries are already quite hot and have a large agricultural workforce, which means that they face some significant risks from climate change. And many low- and middle-income countries um, have high inequality, low social mobility, ineffective institutions for government, uh, and high crime rates, which in various configurations mean that they will find it more difficult to ignore uh, the siren song of populism. So across automation, digitization, protectionism, 
climate change and populism, low and middle income countries are less robust to the challenges and less well positioned to seize the opportunities. Uh, and we think that means the path to development is going to get harder to follow. There'll be less countries moving from low to middle income and from middle to high income. Let me illustrate that by spending a couple of minutes speaking about the case of China. Um, so China scores extremely well on our drivers index. If we think about the traditional drivers of development, there aren't many countries that have done it better than China. China has a modern infrastructure. China has an, a can-do government. China spends a huge amount of money on research and development. On our drivers index, China ranks as the fourth best economy and the best emerging market by a wide margin. But when we think about those disruptive forces that are reshaping the global economy, China faces some significant challenges. China is significantly exposed to the risk of protectionism. China faces risks from climate change. China's relatively high degree of inequality and low social mobility could pose a medium-term challenge to social stability. Does that mean China's development story is over? Absolutely not. China's policymakers in the past have proved to be extremely smart in finding solutions to difficult development challenges. What it does mean is that for China and other low- and middle-income countries, the path ahead is going to be harder uh, than the path which they've just traveled. Thanks. I thought I'd just focus a little bit on the, on the populism part of the story um, because, uh, Tom, you were saying that um, one of the big areas of vulnerability was the populism beginning to come through in lower middle-income countries. And, of course, you can, it depends on your definition of populism, but if you looked at, say, I don't know, Brazil or Argentina or Mexico, maybe Turkey, maybe the Philippines, uh, there are a whole range of countries where you might say that there are populist leaders in place who are pursuing policies that... Uh, it's a little bit different from what's happened um, in the past. But what I think is also striking is that some of the countries you identify as being in a stronger position overall also, I think, are beginning to experience um, feelings of, of populism. Um, in the case of the UK, um, admittedly, the political parties are just as strong as they always were, but the nature of those parties is different, I think, from how it has been in the past. Um, uh, the, both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party going into this coming general election are both, I think, much more populist than was the case maybe 10, 20 years ago. The same is true in parts of uh, the rest of uh, Europe. Um, you think, look at the politics in Italy or France over the course of the last few years. It may be that the incumbents have remained non-populist, but there's certainly underneath the sort of surface bubbling away um, a sense of populism beginning to come through. And the same is broadly true of the US. So I, I thought what I could talk about was, was the idea that um, it's not just low- and middle-income countries that have suffered from populism, but it is countries whereby there are parts which have been left behind, where there's regional um, imbalances that have emerged that have led to this beginning of populism. And if, if you imagine a map of Europe and break Europe down into tiny little sub-regions, and not looking at country-by-country country comparisons, but tiny little sub-region comparisons. And then think about those parts of Europe that have seen the biggest increases in living standards relative to everybody else, or the biggest increases in the league table of living standards, and those parts of Europe which have seen the biggest relative declines in living standards. You get a quite interesting map 
uh, the first part of the map, the biggest increases, most of it is a kind of central spine right in the middle of Europe, like a, a kind of rebuilt Holy Roman Empire or something like that. And of course, it's partly associated with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the uh, removal of the Iron Curtain, and the creation of almost like new economic synapses in the middle of Europe, new markets being created, which have led to, tr tr to tremendous gains over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. But also, in Europe, there's a kind of geographical periphery, um, uh, sort of literal geographical periphery of parts which have been left behind. Uh, Greece, most obviously, for all sorts of you know, sovereign reasons. Uh, big chunks of Italy, and interestingly, uh, quite big chunks of the UK. Um, so I come from Greater London. London has done incredibly well over the last 20 or 30 years. But if you came from the northeast of England or from West Wales, or you came from Cornwall or Devon, uh, you haven't just fallen back relative to the rest of the UK you've fallen back relative to the rest of Europe by quite a dramatic degree. So one example here is that 20 years ago, West Wales in per capita incomes was significantly richer than, say, Bratislava, whereas today, Bratislava is significantly richer um, than West Wales. And just dwelling on the UK for a few seconds more, and when you look at the patterns of voting in 2016 for Brexit, it was largely those geographical regions that have been left behind uh, that voted uh, to leave the EU, not because necessarily were anti-Europe, because they wanted to feel they wanted to have some sense of change, uh, some sense of, of shift. Um, other countries, France, another good example, interesting example, France, because Fra French incomes overall um, are above the European average, as you'd probably expect. But if you actually break France down into its sub-regions, um, you find that of about 30 regions or so, only two have incomes above the European average. Uh, the Ile de France, uh, of course, dominated by Paris, and Rhône-Alpes, uh, which is dominated by Lyon, Courchevel, other lovely ski resorts, uh, which has done also very, very well. But every other region of France has incomes below uh, the European average. And then you sort of think about the Gilets jaunes, you think about support for Le Pen in parts of France, and you think, well, that, there's a reason for that in one sense, which is the sense of being left behind. Oh, thanks, Stephen. I, mean, I think you've highlighted some of the things that... Um you know, we thought about in doing the report, but I think we would also revisit if we were thinking about how to develop this index because the things that have been sort of lessons of the last 10 or 20 years, certainly when I think of what we focused on when I was first learning economics, there was a lot of concern around the flow of goods and to some extent about the opening up of capital. And we underestimated what the flow of, even up till now, what the flow of labor was going to do in terms of its political impacts. If you look across Europe, if you look at the US, how, that, how immigration and flows of people have now unexpectedly been driving political dynamics. But I think the other, the other two things that have kind of come back to bite us is the importance of, of the, the, the good and the bad uh, bad of having agglomeration benefits, the fact that cities in, have become, places that were successful have become more and more successful and as you suggest, leaving behind um, other parts of, of countries and, and regions and I guess related to that, just that there has been a really strong geographical dimension to growth and to the political impact of, of growth and if you look at, as you said, if you look at Europe you know, it was one of the things that the, the British used to sort of say, gosh, the Eurozone is such a bad idea. How can you have these different countries with the same currency with such large gaps of income? Of course, the gaps of income between the poorest and the richest region in the UK is actually a larger gap than between, or as large as any gap between other different parts of the Eurozone. 
Um, and at least in the Eurozone had an albeit very painful mechanism for trying to narrow those gaps. Uh, in the UK, those gaps were, were never really addressed uh, successfully and festered and worsened. Um, and one of the consequences, as you suggest, uh, was at least a significant chunk of the votes for Brexit, which, which made the difference in, that, in the end. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on the ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics during the week, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at my Stephanomics. This episode was written and reported by me, Stephanie Flanders. It was produced by Magnus Henriksen and edited by Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks this week to Lord Nicholas Stern, Tom Orlick, Chang Shu, Stephen King, Ma Jun, Kelly Belknap, Pete Chan, and everyone involved with the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.